Well, once again, it's time to go Inside EMS. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome you to the show. In this episode of the Inside EMS podcast is sponsored by Lexapol and their digital media community, EMS One. Access free COVID-19 policies, courses, and additional resources through Lexapol's Coronavirus Learning and Policy Center, available at coronavirus.lexapol.com. Kelly Grayson is, of course, doing his best paramedic stuff and won't be joining us today. We send our thoughts and prayers not only to him, but to all the EMS agencies that are out there and doing the work. I got to tell you, every time we open up the news, every time we open up the internet, you know, we're talking about things that are going on in our career field that we've never, ever experienced before. And this really is going to change the paradigm of how we're able to do our job how we're able to prepare for our job, and how we're able to look at pandemics in the future. And even though this is a stressful time and we're hearing about, you know, nurses and paramedics, you know, falling asleep in their cars until their next shifts and, you know, the the worry about getting sick and the worry about our peers, you know, we're hearing every day that peers that we have, they're, they're dying because of COVID-19. There's got to be something good that comes out of this. And uh, I tip my hat to everybody's out there, and, and you guys are warriors, you know, as you start to go through this process and you, you know, you go to work every day. And, and I just want to tip my hat and say thank you for the work that you're doing. And I am very, very inspired every day when I hear, you know, how we're responding to this uh, horrible pandemic. Quick news I want to go ahead and touch on. You know, there's a lot of things that are going on inside the news that if we can find some time, we need to be a part of. And recently, the National Association of Emergency Medical Technicians posted, um, you know, your, uh, wanting to get your effort to help in sending letters to the lawmakers about PPE for first responders. There's a lot of talk, man. There's a lot of talk about getting hospitals the supplies that they need to do their job and, and they should have that. And, but EMS is getting left out of that conversation as well. So we want to be able to make certain that as stockpiles are coming, as money is coming, EMS needs to get their fair share. So they're able now to ensure that the people who are going into the homes are going to be protected. Another bill that's out there uh, is going to be passed by Bill Heizenga. I hope I'm saying his name right, Congressman. If I'm not, I apologize. But he wants to pass a bill. Keep your eyes on this, ladies and gentlemen. He wants to pass a bill that is going to make it for three months that EMS professionals, as well as hospitals, doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, can get three months of tax-free money. It would be great. One of the things that I would ask you as you keep your eye on that bill, make sure that you get to your lawmakers and say your, uh, you know, share your support, but also make sure that it includes private EMS. Private EMS is always left out of these things, and usually this goes just for municipalities and people that are working in third city services, but we want to be able to make certain that our private EMS is included in that as well. All right. So as we transition, you know, we're seeing a lot of things and we're watching a lot of the news. And I got to tell you, you know, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, it's on my TV all day. Why? Because as an EMS provider, as an EMS leader, I want to make sure that I'm staying up on the latest that's going on. Now the talk is going to be, do we need to start using masks to, you know, ensure that if we have the virus before we're tested or before we show symptoms that we don't pass along to somebody else and just all interesting stuff. But I, I was really interested in finding out what's going on inside 
the hospital setting. And it'd be great to get somebody on that from a hospital-based EMS standpoint. But we have got some great guests today and returning to us after 10 months. It's been 10 months since this person has been on the show uh, Gina Carbino, she's the clinical education manager at the University of Vermont Health Network at CVPH. We had some trouble with that and when we were starting and what we were going to say. And Tammy Trombley, she is the trauma program manager working in the same place. And ladies, I want to welcome you to the Inside EMS podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to visit with me. No, oh, we're so happy to be here. Hi, Chris. Thank you. So, you know, we think about this, and I want to try to be able to bring some of this, you know, awareness to what's going on inside the facilities. And I, and I know that there's a lot of stuff to talk about. And Gina, maybe from your side, I mean, you are so great. And I follow you on Facebook. A lot of our EMS providers follow you. When it comes to education, you really take things to the next level. But you, I, I really like you to talk about some of the stats that are going on and uh, up there in the, well, in the state of New York and also in your county if you if you have a uh, idea about that yeah absolutely so new york as we hear on the news is the epicenter of this crisis we're hanging around 75,000 infected confirmed infected patients um we're close to 4,300 um deaths and um, just yesterday in the state of New York, we tested 16,000 people. So we're looking for probably a rise, um, again, from that 75,000, probably in a couple of days, we're going to be well over 100,000 people just in New York alone. Um, we're lucky. I'm lucky where I live. I live in upstate New York. So we're nestled in a very rural area. So we're not seeing those numbers. We only have 24 confirmed positives in our county, multiple PUIs or persons under investigation. And we only have five confirmed in-house. Um, so our numbers in my county are, you know, are, are very low compared to New York State. But we've had the time to prep and prepare. And a lot of other areas have not been blessed with this opportunity of time. And I think that that's one of the things that's really important. I mean, this kind of this kind of hit us, you know, a blindsided us, even though we know that the first case in the United States happened in January, we really kind of took a back seat. So, you know, when you think about that, Gina, from your side, and I want to get into the logistics and the EMS response as well, but when we think about this from your side, watching what's going on and listening to the governor every day and, and probably keeping your eye on the pulse of this, how has it helped you prepare? What are some of the things you've been doing to make sure that your agency is really, and really your personnel are, uh, you know, on the forefront of making sure they address this as best they can. Well, I'm definitely blessed to work for the organization that I do. CBPH it has, uh, has, is really supportive of their personnel. One of the things that we've done is we have increased coverage. So we have 24 seven coverage of educators and their only role is to circle around and touch in with staff on all units and focusing mainly on those frontline staff members in ICU and the ED to go over how do you do on and off PE? What's the proper procedure for testing? How do you do a nasal pharyngeal swab? Um, walking, walking the specimens to the lab, the lab, answering all of those in, you know, those, those questions in time. So that helps reduce the anxiety of staff because this is a scary, scary disease. I mean, we have, everybody's scared of this and, you know, pre-hospital and ED folk do not get scared very often. 
So I think the fact that we have 24-7 educators rounding and are, are able to talk to people in person and educate in person helps a lot. Um, we've stockpiled all of our um, PPE, so we have appropriate PPE for all of our personnel. We're just now getting in the process of holding on to our N95s and starting the process of doing um, UV sanitation for them. So we'll have those in the future because we don't know what it's going to look like a month from now ordering these supplies. Right now, it's really tricky to get supplies. What is that going to look like in a month? So we're really being proactive with um, things that New York City wasn't able to be proactive with. And I think you bring up a lot of things that I, I do want to get back to PP here in a little bit. But Tammy, I, I want to go ahead and bring you in here because you're the trauma program manager, but you've got kind of special duty, I think, during this. We kind of talked before we started. Uh, I guess you guys have tents set up outside. You have drive-through set up. Can you tell us a little bit about that practice and how that's going to work? Yeah, we have actually two tents set up um, and the, the patients will come to the emergency department and we have a pre-screener in the vestibule and basically these sort patients at that point. And if it's an ambulatory, you know, relatively not terribly sick patient, we would triage them to the tent. Those patients we think might be COVID positive, flu-like symptoms, fever, um, um, but not terribly sick people. We would triage them to the tent where they get examined um, by a provider and a nurse and determine whether or not um, they're going to need to be swabbed. They could swab for strep, they could swab for flu, they could swab for COVID. Um, and then the patients get, get discharged with instructions for quarantining and how to care for themselves um, if they have the flu or COVID. And we have a follow-up process through the health department um, locally where they would be contacted um, with the results of their test directly, but they are quarantined until they do get their test results. We have a similar system um, utilizing the tent staff um, where providers can order the swab um, and uh, outpatient reg them, so to speak, and then notify us that they're coming. And we go out to the car and we swab that person and the same process happens. They get a follow-up phone call. Um, they're quarantined um, until they know whether or not they're positive or negative. Um, um, we do have uh, a couple of other uh, outpatient type swab drive-throughs. We have a um, one that is coordinated with a local physician's office that utilizes a different lab, a bioreference lab, and not um, our state lab. Um, so we do their swabbing because they don't have appropriate PPE to be conducting um, those activities on those patients. So to protect our um, private offices, we've we've initiated that. Um, so uh, it is. It is. It has been quite a task to set up and to coordinate and logistically make sure we're, you know, um, maintaining, um, you know, good uh, PPE and procedures for clean and, and dirty. Um, but again, like Gina said, we've had a little bit of time to prep. Um, our volumes haven't peaked yet. Um, and I think that the governor of New York State, um, you know, putting a stay in place order in when he did may have been a, a, a bit late for the New York City area, but it was certainly good timing for us because we hadn't even begun to see a case. We hadn't had one case when the stay in, stay in place order went into effect for the entire state. So I think that will help flatten our curve. And it also gave us time to get these tents up and to implement our processes and fine tune our processes. Um, so when we do see a surge, we're, we're set to go. 
And I got to tell you, man, I think that that's incredible. And, and you know, it sounds like you guys are really in a great place. And Tammy, you know, you talked about refining the processes and so on. You know, as the trauma program manager, I, I'm going to guess you have experience being an RN. And you're also a critical care paramedic, by the way. I want to let our listeners know that. So I'm just curious, in this process of setting up the tents and this whole, what, what surprised you the most? I mean, what was something that you said, okay, this is, we got to do this, but it really kind of maybe caught you off guard or was an aha moment, or it was really something that you said, you know, we're here. I can't believe we're doing this. Um, I mean, I think, I think one of the challenging things was we had no infrastructure for the tent. So you think about a normal process for screening a patient, for documenting, for swabbing, for ordering, and we had no um, electronics. We had generators um, running our power. We had no Wi-Fi, so we couldn't use computer ordering. So we had to use two-way radios and radio back to the emergency department um, to get orders put in. Um, it just really was difficult to start with. It is still winter here, um, so there were a couple of, couple of days where it, where it was you know below freezing. Um, we do have heaters, and um, it was difficult to regulate the temperature in the tents. Um, so some of those things were challenging. Um, you know, in securing your PPE, you know, we we don't want people to come in and steal our PPE. It's just a tent. Um, so figuring out how we were going to, you know, make sure that our supplies were safe um, was a little bit challenging as well. There were a lot of moving parts to it, but we have a really great facilities team. Um, our admin um, had set up the incident command weeks ago um, had, and had begun this planning um, in anticipation of it becoming a pandemic. That was before it was a pandemic. Um, so they really put a lot of work in, and our incident command system has really been in effect for weeks now. That sounds great. And uh, one of the things I want to remind you about is during this crisis, EMS providers can access online coronavirus-related courses and policies for fire and EMS at no cost. Access is available to first responders and agencies nationwide. To learn more, visit coronavirus.lexipol.com. That's coronavirus.lexipol.com. Lexapol is the leading content policy and training platform for public safety and local government. You know, Gina, I want to go ahead and switch back to you. And I want to touch on a subject that, you know, a lot of EMS is having to think about. And, and we kind of talked about this before we started to rec uh, record. You know, regional EMS has come up with a process now of how they're going to deal with cardiac arrests in the field. And maybe you could just give us a little bit of overview. And I just want to touch on this a little bit because I think that a lot of EMS agencies are going to have to move to this practice, but it is causing a little bit of heartburn. Yeah, I think that th this is something that we as a nation uh, or as, as a society, our culture, this is a culture shock to us. And um, I think people are having some some big feelings around this. So our um, regional EMS folks have put out uh, a report yesterday to all of our EMS providers that we're not bringing, we're, we're going to work our cardiac arrests in the field. And the only time that we would bring them in, if there was something that we could do at the hospital that they can't do on site. And I think that that is... Um, a lot of people are having a hard time digesting their, their feelings with this. And it is one of those things that we've been talking about in EMS for a lot of years. You know, uh, we just had a show with Tom Boothelay, 
and he is the battalion chief of EMS in Hilton Head, South Carolina. And I mean, when we talk about uh, you know cardiac arrest data, when we talk about him being the, uh, I think Kelly Grayson called him the uh, Master Jedi when it comes to uh, uh, cardiovascular stuff. But he mentioned to us he's keeping data, ten years of care data. And uh, anybody that they found in unwitnessed arrest in asystole, they've had 0% resuscitation, 10 years worth mm -hmm. of that data. So now when we start yeah. to think about this from a COVID-19, are we just transporting dead people to the hospital? And is it time now that we really start to think about how we do our business? And is it time that we do you know, run these codes in the field that we wait till we get a return of spontaneous circulation? Do we, you know, we get our folks on the radio and or the telemedicine and we start to talk about this, Doc, what do you think we should do? But, you know, one of the things that I, I hope that comes from this, is this really the time to start to think about how we manage cardiac arrest in the field and really considering, you know, transporting patients even as we move forward? Um, yes, absolutely. First, I, I know Tom. I worked with him in South Carolina. He is well-deserving of the Master Jedi title. I do have a brain crush with him when it comes to electrophysiology. He is, he is literally a god of electrophysiology. Um, but yes, I think that this crisis or this pandemic is showing us the gaps that we have in practice. And, you know, like there's a meme floating around Facebook. Well, I guess we're going to find out how many meetings could could have been um, via email or Zoom. And I think that's highlighting some of the things that we waste in resources and healthcare. Um, I think that there are a lot of feelings involved with cardiac arrests and it gets, it gets really almost exciting for EMS and ED staff to deal with cardiac arrest. But honestly, like data shows that working the patient at the field, if we're going to get ROSC, we're going to, we can get that in the patient's home. And if we're not going to get ROSC where it's a gross waste of time and resources. And even if we do get ROSC, what's the neurological outcomes or the quality of life that person has, and also the mortality rate within a year of um, ROSC or even 30 days post-discharge is very, very poor. So I do think that these are some of the things that we should have been doing beforehand, and I hope that we continue afterwards. I agree with you 100%, and it makes all sense. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Now, you guys talked a little bit about PPE, and I, I want to kind of follow up with that because, you know, it sounds like you're pretty well set. It sounds like you haven't gotten really bombarded yet. Um, you know, you, you've got all your stuff. You're ready to go. I'd really like to hear a little bit about your contingency. If things, you know, look like they do in, in other states, how do you go about this? I mean, how do you go about, uh, you know, keeping your employees safe if this PPE starts to run down and, and there's nowhere to get it? So I think that the plan that they have for us to use our um, N95s and reuse them um, is, is really ingenious. Um, the process that we're working through right now will enable us to utilize that mask over and over again. And I think that, bef you know, we have about a 30-day supply currently of N95s, but once we ramp up, we're we're going to be like New York City. We're going to have a five-day or 10-day supply if we keep disposing of every N95 that we use. Um, so things like that. You know, we've had difficulty getting um, bleach, bleach wipes and hand sanitizer. So we've partnered with some of our local breweries to provide some of those chemicals that we need for sanitizer, for hand sanitizer or for our alcohol um, sprays. 
Um, we've asked the community for um, donations of bleach and um, towels um, so that we can help um, build up our stock and supplies so that, um, you know, we have resources when, when it all comes down. Um, we also have looked at some of our local industry and said, hey, do you have any extra N95s that you're not using that you would be willing to donate to us? Um, and we're really just partnering with as many local companies to provide some of these, these you know, crucial um, things that are in short supply already um, and in preparation for us to um, gear up our numbers. So some of the things we're doing also is where EVS, our environmental services, is making sanitation stations. So right now we have five sanitation stations, which is just such a fun word to say, um, in our department where EVS comes up and has uh, disposable towels and spray. So we don't have to utilize all of our cabbie wipes or dispatch wipes or bleach wipes. We can use those for our C. diff patients or things that we need to get done really quickly. And all the other patients, we can use the sanitation stations to wipe down any equipment. Um, our physicians are using PAPRs, which we can immediately immediately wiped down before and after use. So those are reusable. That's cutting down on our N95 use. Um, we're also partnering, we're in the process of partnering with our hospitality industry locally and um, using their laundry services to launder scrubs and gowns and um, only utilizing impermeable gowns for those high risk procedures like high flow nasal cannula, intubation, CPR, anybody that's on a ventilator. Um, so we really, ha we've had the blessing of time to come up with these contingency plans. We also have um, begun a recycling process for our disposable goggles. Um, they're meant to be used once and tossed, but our environmental services group um, has figured out a way for us to dispose of them in a recycle bin and they reclean them for us, bag them and send them back for reuse. In fact, CNN just did an interview either today or yesterday with one of our environmental service workers because we do have an exemplary, exemplar process in cleaning and reusing these products. At the end of the week, we'll also start to be um, recycling and cleaning through our environmental services uh, our reusable disposable stethoscopes because a month from now, we're not going to be able to get those in. And that's, you know, that's definitely going to be clutch for an assessment or a disposition is being able to listen to those lungs. And the hospital has um, looked at areas of um, uh, where staff have been displaced because services have diminished or they've closed certain outpatient elective services. So they've taken those displaced staff members and put them into key critical areas of recycling or reuse um, or screening so that people are keeping their jobs, but we're also supporting some of these brand new processes that will help us prolong our PPE in the long run. Yeah, so any any surgeries besides emergent surgeries are, are OR shutdown besides for anything but emergent surgeries. So a lot of those OR staff used to be ED staff. We're, we're getting that staff and we're utilizing them in like a tiered approach. They may not be up and running to be a fully functioning ER nurse, but there's many things that they can do. They can go medicate our other patients, our patients, they can um, put in IV. So that's been a blessing. The other thing that our organization's doing to help support our staff and to keep our staff and patients safe is we only have four points of entry into our hospital and that's manned by um, clinicians and they're screening absolutely everybody that comes through and we have a zero visitor policy. The only people that have visitors is per discretion on a non-COVID 
COVID cardiac arrest and um, somebody that's in labor. And they're only allowed one person. Another really cool um, thing that we've done with our EMS personnel is that every EMS agency coming in typically will call a report uh, over the radio to our triage staff. They have to give a room assignment um, before EMS can offload their patients. So no EMS agency enters into the emergency department without a room assignment and they go directly to the room. But at the door, we also have EMS screeners that ensure that the patient's got it, that the patient is appropriately masked and that the staff coming in are appropriately uh, PPE'd as well. Um, there's some discussion about handoff of care with transfers in that of known COVID patients where um, the EMS staff transferring the patient would transfer at the door to clean staff, bringing a patient, bringing the patient in on a clean stretcher. Um, and that's still just in the early stages. Um, but again, we, we have a little time to figure this stuff out. So some really cool things. Um, that are going on. And to bounce off that, when we talk about um, this pandemic, identifying our gap, some of the things that would, re that really like, you know, burn a fire under my rear end is um, the lack of collaboration in the ED between EMS and nurse nurses. You know, back in the day when I was working as a clinician, I, when I knew I was getting a patient from EMS, I was in that room and I listened to their report. They saw the patient, they know what's going on with the patient. And somewhere along the way, I think that we've lost that in some of our um, emergency emergency departments. And this is helping put that process back in place. So in theory, when that patient EMS gets the patient's room, the nurse should be in there waiting for that patient and is listening to that EMS report. Um, and I think we need to, we need to keep that. We, I, hopefully we don't lose this when this pandemic's over. Yeah. I got to tell you, that's something that's really close to my heart and something that, uh, really has gone on for a lot of years. I got to tell you, just I, I don't know why I was taking tons of notes when you guys were talking because I'm recording this, but it does sound like you guys are doing an amazing job. It sounds like you're as prepared as you're going to be. Certainly, we don't know what we don't know yet, so we're going to kind of, you know, you're going to kind of answer that as that comes along. And I got to tell you, I mean, just as we were talking, you guys sound like you're truly prepared and uh, you're going to handle it and, and do this, uh, you know, do this war as, as best as you can, so to speak. You know, so, you know, one of the things that we think about is, is I'm always wondering, you know, when it comes to mental wellness, I don't want to say mental health, let's say mental wellness. Th this is very stressful. Are you guys addressing that in any way? Yes, we are. There's a couple things that we're doing, and one of them I'm particularly proud of. One of the things that we're doing is um, shift huddles. So one of our managers uh, leads a shift huddle. And at that time, we take, we, you know, talk things out and we answer any questions. And I think just knowing that a manager is there for you helps alleviate fear. But what I'm really proud of is we have our in-house psychologist rounding to our unit twice a day and talking to all of our staff and troubleshooting any questions. And if there has, if somebody is, um, pretty concerned or has a lot of anxiety, they're doing one-on-one -on -one sessions with that psychologist to help debrief and offload so some, of, some of these stressors. Because this is a stressful time. People are scared. And just working in pre-hospital and in the emergency department is stressful. Then you throw on a national pandemic that we're in uncharted territories. Really, we're, we're flying by the seat of our pants here. It, it, that's, that's a scary time for people. And she's helping out. Us. She's, our psychologist is helping out a lot. So I'm really proud that we're doing this. And I hope other organizations are doing that as well for their staff members. I got to tell you, Gina, that sounds like a really, uh, it's a best practice that you guys are doing. It'd be interesting to know when this is over, if, if you guys collect any data, when it comes to mental wellness, 
how you guys were able to manage that because you know from this and i know you're an established speaker and you know you're traveling around the united states and always sharing your knowledge there's going to be a lot of information that comes out of this pandemic that truly needs to be dissected needs to be taught needs to be researched and needs to be shared and this is probably one of those topics so i'm going to look forward to uh hearing anything that comes from that but you know you guys sound like you're in an amazing shape i'd like to check back with you you know, in, in a month or so, certainly if your schedule allows that to happen to kind of see what we've learned along these processes or along this timeline. And I just got to tell you, Gina and Tammy, you know, for taking time out of your busy day to share a little bit with the uh, listeners of Inside EMS, I am in your debt. And if there's anything I could ever be a resource for, please don't hesitate to ask. Yeah, no, I think that would be great. We'd love to come back on in maybe like a month or a month and a half when we're on the other side of our curve. That would be interesting. Yeah, and I, I love to hear those stories. So, Tammy and Gina, you've been great guests. For everybody out there, I mean, what is your interaction going to be with your hospital system? Have you been able to talk with the hospitals to say, what's the process and how are we doing this and what do you need from us? And, you know, Gina brings up a great point. Is this the time to get back to listening to EMS and their reports? Uh, I hope it is. But, you know, from this pandemic, something good has to come from it. You know, I want to thank Gina Carbino and Tammy Trombley for joining us. For everybody out there, I want to thank you for listening. For my partner, Kelly Grayson, I'm Chris Sabalero. We'll talk to everyone again real soon.